Lord, we ask now that you'll open our minds, open our hearts, open our spirits so that we can receive the good gift of your word and the good gift of Jesus in bread and in wine today. In his name we pray, amen. Church, God has been very kind to Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church during the course of our history. And uh, over the last month, Rev and I have been talking through um, four different core values that um, characterize in a unique kind of way the personality and the mission of this congregation. They're really at the heart of who we are. Of course, we did not make these things up. Um, These four characteristics existed first in the heart of God, where every good and perfect gift comes from. And he, just in his wisdom, has specially shared these four with us. And uh, if you have been here, you've heard this before, but the four are um, kind of welcoming folks in, attracting folks, and offering good hospitality. And they are serving children. The third one is being a generous people. And the fourth one today is the characteristic, the core value of excellence. And this one, quite frankly, is the hardest one for me to both explain and wrap my mind around because it's a very broadly defined term, and quite frankly, over the last 50 years in the United States of America, it's a word that has been very closely associated with corporate America, making the customer first by offering an excellent product. And while there's a little bit of that truth in the kind of excellence that I'm going to describe to you from the heart of God in the pages of Scripture today, it is not nearly the whole story. So each week, uh, to get to these core values, we have also heard little vignettes uh, in the voice of Mrs. Catherine Tessman, the woman God used to start this church many decades ago. So I invite you to open your ears and turn your attention to the screens as we hear uh, one final time about the origin of Bellwood Gospel Chapel. Clearly, a church started out of a small house with a makeshift steeple and a handmade sign isn't perfect. The adults who crammed in on Sunday mornings weren't usually comfortable, and the children who showed up weren't always well-behaved. Goodness knows my sermons weren't always as polished as I would have liked. And as our ministry expanded beyond our home-based Sunday school and church, like providing various assistance to the community during the Depression and ministering to those in surrounding city jails, we made mistakes, plenty of them. And yet, because we offered God our best efforts as we followed his call, as we reached out to children and looked after the least of these, as we were generous with what we had, We noticed something. Just as God had worked a wonder in my life, just as he had redeemed my mess of a life, God worked wonders with what we had in our ministry, and it was excellent. Now, when Bellwood Gospel Chapel began... They did not begin in the most excellent or flashy church building in Chicagoland, right? It was a two-bedroom bungalow. They did not start with the best educated, most beautiful, most intelligent people in all of Chicagoland. And God bless us, that is still not what we are. Only Rev's laughing. (laughs) Maybe Maybe it's just you and me. 
When we think of excellence, we usually think of top drawer and defect free. That is not what excellence means in the pages of Scripture and, Lord willing, in Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church. So what does it mean? We are going to make four short stops uh, along the route of Scripture today, and we are going to start at the very beginning. At the very first chapter of the Bible, in Scripture's account of the creation story, God speaks a word at the end of each day as he looks upon what he has made. And it is a word that goes like this. God saw all that he, was, he had made, and it was very good. It was very good. It was excellent. God looks at what he has just done, what he has just breathed into existence out of nothing, and God says, that, if I do say so myself, is quite excellent. If we think of, once again, excellence or God's very goodness in terms of flawless in the commercial world or in terms of quality control or exceeding customer expectations, we are missing with a mark in terms of what God is saying. Did God create the universe in order to uh, pander to the customer expectations of Adam and Eve? Of course not. That's not what the Garden of Eden is about. That's not what the universe was about. There's a beautiful retelling of the creation story in a kid's book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And it kind of paraphrases this phrase in this way. And God looked, and all things were lovely because God loved them. I really like this. The beauty of creation, the excellence of creation was there, not because of anything inherent, but because the heart of God was poured into it from the very beginning. I want to notice with you that even in the excellence of the Genesis 1 world, there is room for improvement. Now, the Bible says that all animals under the sun had a male and a female pair, except for humankind. Adam finds himself in this brand new, fresh world, and he is alone, right? Profoundly alone. And he, out of his loneliness, beseeches God. And in response, God performs the first known surgery, if I can put it that way, right? Adam goes to sleep. God opens up the side of the man. This is all in the Bible story, I promise. He opens up the side of the man, takes out a rib, and fashions it into a woman. And when Adam wakes up and sees Eve, he says something like, Shazam! This is what I'm talking about. He is no longer alone. Now, has anybody here ever cracked a rib? Anybody? I see a few hands up there. How did that go for you? Was it a pain-free, kind of easy experience? It was horrible, right? They can't put you in a cast. You just have to suffer as your bones knit back together. Now, when the Lord God took a rib out of Adam, this is just me imagining, I wonder how he felt afterwards. Do you think because it was the Garden of Eden, it was just a 100% pain-free experience? I'm thinking losing a rib kind of hurts. For sure, God is the best surgeon in the world. But do you think having your side opened up, once again, I'm just imagining, do you think that maybe left a mark? 
that when Adam saw Eve for the first time, he had some pain that told him about the sacrifice of what this companionship would cost, and that he would carry around a scar, perhaps, for life. There was room for improvement, and God made it a better world, and it cost something. From the beginning, God's design for the way it is supposed to be involves several ingredients to achieve this kind of excellence. I'm going to suggest these three for us today. That in genuine God-centered biblical excellence, there is creativity. Who is more creative than the Lord God? Everything from nothing. And there is deep and abiding love and kindness, or it is not excellence. And there is also self-sacrifice, or it is not excellence. Now, later in the Old Testament, scene number two, after the world has fallen into sin and become exceedingly unexcellent, God hatches a new, very creative plan to spread his love and kindness to the corners of the world. Here's God's plan. I will call a man named Abraham and his wife Sarah, and from them I will grow a great family, a tribe, a nation, a.k.a. Israel, to bless all the world. And there are several scenes in the pages of Scripture where Abraham makes sacrifices and offerings to the Lord God. Abraham is the first one in the pages of the Bible to offer a tithe, the first and best, the most excellent of what he has, and lays it before God. Follow my example, God is saying down the halls of history through Abraham. Follow my example in giving what is first and best. Now, after the people of Israel multiply, after they are slaves in Egypt and come out, God gives them all kinds of laws to help differentiate them that will show that they are a special and most excellent people. Here's what it says in Leviticus Leviticus 22, verse 22. Talking about how to make a proper offering to God. Do not offer to the Lord the injured or the maimed, talking about food sacrifices, animals or plants, or anything with warts or festering sores. Do not place any of these on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. Now, it is human nature. If we're going to share something, well, with each other or with God... We are, somewhere in our hearts, inclined to share from our leftovers. You know what I'm saying? We don't often make a really exquisite dinner and then just give 100% of it away. Right? If we're making a great dinner, maybe we'll share a little bit of what's left or we'll make double amounts so we can share some and keep some. Like, that's how we operate. But God is saying, when it comes to making a worthy and excellent offering... Share what is first and best. Later in the book of Proverbs, uh, the wisdom there puts it a slightly different way. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits, the first and best of all your crops, and then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. It seems like God is setting here a very high bar for our tithes and offerings. It almost seems like God is up in heaven somewhere very willing to evaluate or rate 
or grade our offerings, if we feel that way, we're missing something, I think. That is not the heart of God, to rate or grade our offerings. What the Bible is getting at here is God's desire to inspire our gratitude because he knows how easily we forget. Imagine with me for a moment that you are sick. Okay, each one of us, individually. You are sick, and the cause of your sickness is that both of your kidneys are failing. Okay? You are slowly feeling worse and worse and worse, lower and lower energy. You are fading. What is going to happen? And somebody, a friend or a family member, steps forward and says, I will donate you one of my kidneys. You have the surgery. It's amazing. Your life comes back to you. Your energy, your sense of health and well-being. How would you, how would you say thank you to the person who gave you an organ, who gave you a kidney, who gave you maybe even your life back? Like, what do you do? Maybe you'd bake a cake, okay? There's really nothing appropriate you can do, okay? We can agree on that. There's no way to pay them back, right? So let's say you bake them a cake. You go to the jewel. You know, you buy some flour, you buy some sugar, you buy some baking powder. I would suggest to you that when you were buying those ingredients for this cake, you would be tiptoeing around the jewel light-footedly because you are so happy and thankful. You would buy those ingredients with love, I hope, right? I mean, this person just saved your life, and you're doing a little shopping. When you go home and, like, stir those ingredients together, you would almost giggle with joy to be able to make this cake for this person. When you popped it into the oven, you would be thinking of them and so thankful when you presented it to them, and then you would say, it's just a little cake. But thank you, thank you, thank you. You still with me in this imagination exercise? This is how God wants us to be with him. Compared to what he's done for us, we are, we are baking him a cake in an easy-bake oven, right? It is woefully inadequate, horribly inadequate. But this is what he asks us to do with the first and best of what we have to demonstrate how thankful we really are. How much has God done for us? How much? Here's what God has done for us. God dreamed us up in the first place. Before we drew a breath, we existed in the mind and the heart of God. Right? Did any of you choose to exist? No, all God. God gave us the breath of life. He not only imagined us, he gave us days, few or many, to walk this planet, to know him and to love each other. God did that for us. And even though we are sinful and unlovely and unlovable, God loves us anyways. God has reached out to us in Jesus Christ to redeem us. God has sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of us to transform us because we can't even change ourselves. And God is preparing an eternal place for us where we will be made right. Could God do any more for us? This is even better than a kidney. Amen? Come on, people. So how can we say thank you First fruits, giving God what's first and best, are a way to safeguard our hearts from being selfish 
and preoccupied because, oh, that is our nature. First fruits is not a harsh, onerous rule. It's supposed to be a freedom-giving rule. If you got a kidney and never said thank you, part of your spirit would begin to fester inside. And it's the same way with spiritual reality with God. Let me paraphrase what's in the book of Proverbs for a moment. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your heart will be filled to overflowing, and your brain, your mind, will brim over with new wine. That's what happens when we express our joy and gratitude to God. God asks for what is best and most excellent from us because when we offer that, it keeps us rooted in reality and grounded in gratitude. When we conceive of any sort of excellence apart from God, apart from thanks to God, the temptation is always toward perfectionism. And this is spiritually dangerous because we make excellence about us instead of about God. See how well I did this? Notice my achievements, won't you? You'll want to buy some of this product because it is so excellent because we have made it so. We even have our own version of this in the church world. It goes like this. There shall be no typos on the screen in our worship services. The pastor shall never misspeak and say Leviticus. (laughs) Already managed that one. The music will always be pitch perfect. The facility shall be spotless, even when there was a crusade last night with a thousand people. And there was, right here. The coffee shall always be fresh brewed. This is the temptation of the Corinthian church, okay? In Bible times, the Corinthians were very much like us. They had excellent stuff. They had top drawer expectations. And when the Apostle Paul wrote to them, he used this profound line. He said to this high-achieving, excellent church, and now I will show you the most excellent way. And what follows is not a chapter about how to improve their quality control, but it's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is all about the way of love. I will paraphrase to you for a moment. If your pastors could preach with the power of Martin Luther King Jr., if we could have no typos on the screen, if we could have congregational singing to rival the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, but have not love, our church would be as excellent as the winless Chicago Bears. (laughs) Hitting where it hurts. If little lambs could reach every child in the western suburbs, if we could tell the most amazing version of every Bible story, if we could keep those kids safe and keep their attention and keep them entertained and teach them to sing at the same time, and if their parents wanted to come back as a result, all of them, but if we had not love, our ministry would be no better than a Teletubbies rerun. That's bad. (laughs) 
if Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church gave millions upon millions of dollars away, if we could reach out to all of Chicagoland, if politicians converted because of the messages that they heard from the ministries of this church, if social policy and political practices would change, if even the state budget was balanced. But we have not love. We are just spam in everybody's inbox. Now at Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church, please believe me, we're doing our best to be excellent in a worldly way with our policies, with our procedures, with our organization, the way we take care of kids. Like, we're doing all of that. But if we don't have love at the same time, it is worthless. If we don't have grateful hearts to Jesus Christ that is our guiding star and motivation, it is worthless. Jesus himself, this is the final scene. When he lived and breathed and walked and talked and preached and taught and healed, people detected in him something more than just top drawer. On one occasion in Mark chapter 7, here was the observation that was made about Jesus and his ministry. People were overwhelmed with amazement. This is after one of his miracles. And they said this, He, Jesus, has done everything well. He has done everything excellently. They intended this line to be about one particular occasion, a day in Jesus' life and ministry. But this line is true of our Lord's life and mission in general. Remember again the ingredients of excellence that we've heard from the Bible? Creativity, yes. Love and kindness and affection, yes. And self-sacrifice, yes. Was there ever a more creative plan in the universe than God the Father sending his only begotten divine son to become one of the tiny, minuscule human beings that the heart of God so lovingly wanted to rescue? You can't get more creative than that. Was there ever a man who loved his friends, his disciples, like Jesus of Nazareth did? Greater love has no one than this, that they would lay down their life for a friend. And he has called us all his friends. Jesus gave his very life. He became not only a kidney donor, he became the donor of the heart of God. Can you think of yourself spiritually this way? That Jesus, because we have no heart or our heart was so corrupted, Jesus has given us the very lifeblood and the heart of God so that we might live. A heart that can be transplanted by grace through faith. And Jesus sacrificed to accomplish this. Jesus was pierced through his hands and his feet and hung on a cross. And do you recall what his final wound was? To see if he was alive or not, a Roman soldier pierced his side with a spear just below the ribcage 
Do you remember where Adam was perhaps wounded in that first surgery? And the Bible calls Jesus the second Adam. And he says to us, Behold my hands and my feet, behold my wounds. Did Jesus, after he was resurrected, show up in a perfect, spotless, scar-free body? No. He still bore the wounds of the excellence of love. He was scarred, even in eternity. His resurrected, perfected body, still scarred by the sacrifice of love. Jesus has done all things well. Jesus has done all things excellently. And it is our privilege to come to his most excellent and loving table today. And our job is simple. It's two things. To remember, to take and eat and remember and believe what God has done for us. And the second part of our job description is to receive it with hearts bursting with gratitude. Not just in this moment, but enough gratitude that it will carry us out the door and through the week to live for Jesus Christ until we come back here and remember his love once again seven days from now. A work that is truly excellent. Now, as a pastor, um, we are privileged to come to some very holy moments. Um, some that are just 100% beautiful holy moments, some that are painful and gut-wrenching and holy all at the same time. And um, on a number of occasions, I have been with people on their deathbed or on the last day of their life. And several times, people with their small amount of remaining energy and life breath will whisper something like, was it good enough? Was my life good enough? Was it enough? Even in our final moments, our doubts shadow us all the way there. What does one say to a person knowing that they're about to make the journey to the other side to be with Jesus face to face? Some of us will whisper those same words when it comes to our time. Was it enough? Was my life good enough? All I know to say and to comfort myself with is this. Jesus Christ is good enough. So all will be okay. And if you're leaning on him and trusting him and thanking him, it is enough. It is enough. And your life will be leaning on him in thanksgiving. Excellent. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus. Forgive us for being so forgetful.
for thinking this life is about us when you have given us and provided us with everything beyond asking or imagining. Help us as we celebrate the sacrament of communion now, God, to simply remember Jesus and to allow the walls of our heart to grow just a little bit so that we can thank you. It's in our Lord's name that we pray. And everybody said, amen.